Great. All right. Hi, everybody. Good evening. Um, welcome to Beth Lita's inaugural session of um, the art of the sugya, looking at the literary genius of the Talmud. This class is intended for educated laypersons, people who have all kinds of translatable and analogous skills from their years of wisdom and experience in their lives, their intelligence, their insights that they can bring to Torah. And the point of this class is to try to give people in an entryway into classical Jewish uh, learning, uh, specifically here, the Gemurra, right? The Talmud, the, the really the gem of Jewish culture. The, there's no text that typifies Judaism more than an argument that spanned hundreds of years, right? What's more Jewish than just people just never stopping to argue with each other, but through <laughs> argument, bringing more information and more wisdom, trying to really um, touch on every single aspect of something. So what we're gonna be looking at in each of these sessions is one sugya. Now, a sugya is a word that's hard to translate, and if you were to use an English uh, term for it, the term used is pericope, but that's not helpful. So what's a sugya? A sugya is basically the basic unit of a conversation. That's what a sugya is. A sugya is like, you know, like we divide hours into minutes, right? A, a sugya is a unit of conversation, and that's what we're going to be, of a discussion. Right. We're going to look at one discussion over an organizing theme, and we're going to look at the way in which the editors of the Talmud, who are called the Stama'im, the anonymous editors, took traditions, opinions, um, insights, arguments spanning a few hundred years and wove them together, wove them together into one integrated, synthesized whole. And we're going to look at the way in which uh, it's an artful act of editing, editing as itself a creative act. We usually think of an editor as something that's post ex facto, something that's not an essentially creative thing, right? Saying, you know, people are like, oh, you can either be a, a critic is just, an, you know, someone who couldn't be an artist. But in editing, editing is itself actually an artistic and creative act to take raw material and to shape it into something in which the pieces next to each other do something more than just them on their own. And that's the kind of artistry that we're going to see as we learn Talmud. And part of this is also going to be a skills-based introduction to see um, what it's like just to develop techniques, what kinds of ways of thinking is the Talmud trying to induce in us. Right? The Talmud, as we read the Talmud, the Talmud reads us too. The Talmud is trying to teach us how to think, teach us how to read, and teach us how to argue better. So we're going to get into it. Um, I'm going to share screen and we'll look at the sugya we'll be focusing on today. Can everyone see that? Great. Okay. So this is a sugya that is drawn from Masechet Brachot. Masechet Brachot is the first uh, Masechta, first tractate in the Talmud. And it deals with uh, topics having to do with prayers and blessings. Now, interestingly, there are six orders that make up the whole of the Talmud. They're called Shisha Sidre Mishnah, or Shas. If you ever hear the phrase or the term Shas, that is an acronym for Shisha Sidre, the six orders. And it just is a way of referring to the whole of the Talmud. So the first or order in the Talmud is Zuraim, is the order having to do with agriculture. And interestingly, um, interestingly, 
that is the um, that is the file uh, that is the order in which we find this uh, chapter on prayer. This is the that's the file in which we find this uh, tractate on blessing. Now, why do you think it's the case that the tractate on blessing is actually found in the section having to do with agriculture? Like that seems uh, less than intuitive. Does anyone have any ideas about that? Well, we eat a lot of food and we say blessings on food and we get our food from agriculture. Okay, that's very nice. That's feasible. All right, it's tying our attention back to the source of our food and one of the primary, um, you know, one of the real focuses Masechus Brachus is blessings about what we eat. Very nice. Um, maybe this... Uh... This was edited by someone, by people who believed that their ability to be devoted to give blessings was directly tied to how well, you know, the yield that they were able to get from their land. Okay, very nice. So there's some kind of tie, right? Ancient Judaism is especially agriculturally focused and especially agriculturally focused because it's an agrarian society, right? So the prayers have to do, I mean, this is still the case, right? The prayers that, a lot of the prayers that we say are tied to the rain cycle, right, in Israel. Even, you know, living in, living in the Holy Land of Canada, we are still oriented around the natural rain cycle in the land of Israel because the prayers are tied to the way in which the in which the farming cycle and the seasonal cycle works. Great. So these are all these are all great ideas and actually you are sharing these insights with other great scholars. So look, already your intuition is aligning with uh, with the thinking of of many greats. Okay. So this is a um, we're going to start by looking at a Mishnah and then we'll progress to look at the Gemara. So the Talmud is made of two um, texts that are woven together. The first text is the Mishnah, which was edited around 200 CE by Rabbi Judah the Prince, Yehuda Hanasi, and he will show up soon, and he is just called Rabbi. He's so central to the text that he just goes by Rabbi, right? Not even Rabbi his name, it's just Rabbi. Um, and the second strand of the Talmud is the Gemara. Now the Gemara is was edited the depending who you talk to, but somewhere between the 5th and the uh, 8th century. Um, and it's the second generation, right? It's the second order of the Talmud. It is taking the Mishnah and then tearing it, to tearing it apart, analyzing every little bit of it, trying to hash out and figure out what it means and what it's getting at, and often actually trying to justify it. So we'll see a good example of that here. The, this week, we're, every week we'll be doing two things. We'll be doing it emically and etically, inside and outside. The inside is we're going to be looking at a topic. We'll look at a, a question that's interesting, right? Here the question is, do mitzvot require intention? That's an interesting question. But outside, externally, at the same time, what we'll be looking at is a different way in which the Talmud works. And here what we'll be looking at is the way in which the, Tal the Gemara takes the Mishnah and runs with it, right? That's going to be the methodological aspect of what we're going to be looking at tonight. So let's just start inside, and we'll start with this question. Do mitzvot require kavanah? What do you think? What does it mean to do a mitzvah? 
what is required of us when we do it, and what is quote-unquote done when a mitzvah is performed. Big questions, right? Judaism is in a lot of ways centered on the performance of the mitzvot, performance of the commandments. So when we do a mitzvah, what is it that we're doing? What are we trying to accomplish? That's a real question. Please feel free to unmute yourself and let me know. What do you think? What do we do when we do a mitzvah? We're, um, we're acting in the image of Hashem so that if it's a mitzvah is usually something good. It's also thanking Hashem. Um, but, but a mitzvah like keeping Shabbat is something we're commanded to do. Um, a mitzvah like making a bracha over, over wine. So that's, that's also a mitzvah, but it's, it's, I think modeling yourself to be a holy person. And I think the intention is very important. If, if you don't have the intention and you're doing it by rote and you're just mumbling words of brachot or just doing the mitzvah without really thinking about it, you're probably still fulfilling the mitzvah, but having the, um, the kavana to, to really be doing it, I think, means more, if I made myself clear. Yeah. Okay. So to synthesize, I think what you're saying, draw a couple insights out of it. One is that... Um, I'd like to add something different. One second. Is, one second, Okay, Eric. I'll just I'll wait. Okay, thank you. Um, so one, one, one thing I heard from Lauren is that a mitzvah, I mean, our mitzvahs range, like there's all kinds of things that we're asked to do. So the question of t like, what's a unified theory of mitzvah is maybe not an obvious one. But secondarily, a mitzvah is not just an external performance of something. It involves some kind of modeling of yourself as being in the image of God. And also I saw in the chat that Yitzchak is saying that is a mitzvah is also... Um, kind of a reflexive action in which refines us internally in some way. So it seems like the notion that a mitzvah is just some kind of robotic exterior action seems to strike us immediately as being missing something basic, right? That mitzvah involves the external action paired with something happening inside of you. I disagree. Uh, wait, first Eric and then, and then Sydney. Uh, I, I think that the purpose of a mitzvah is to connect yourself to the Jewish people in a long chain of uh, practices which identify us as Jewish. Um, I also have a feeling that the, uh, there is a lot of discussion on uh, if you perform the mitzvah only to get mitzvah points, it doesn't count. So uh, there's a que the question of intention uh, is involved in that. Okay, great. So I heard a couple things. One is that this is very nice. Actually, there's a there's an et there's a folk etymology for mitzvah in the Zohar that you see, um, the kind of classic text of Jewish mysticism that derives it from the word savta in Aramaic, which means connection. So you're drawing a connection, actually, a mitzvah as a link in a chain of generations. 
um, of a masora, right? A, a tradition that's passed down to, you know, traditio actually in Latin means something that's passed on to you, right? So to do a mitzvah connects you to your ancestor and then projects you to the people that you will pass these traditions on to as well. But secondly, so you're also, you know, you're referring to kind of a Kantian theory of intention in terms of like your sincerity as you're doing a mitzvah. It can't be done for a, a secondary purpose, some kind of personal benefit. It needs to be done in a way in which you're offering it or performing it sincerely. Okay, Sydney. Um, well, first of all, I think, I don't know for the general theory of mitzvah, but I, if there is one, it's for it's to do tikkun olam, whatever tikkun olam means, we could argue about that. Oh, we have Kabbalist here. But, but more importantly, what I wanted to say is there are two, at least two kinds of mitzvah. One is ben adam makom, and one is ben adam l'chavero. Very nice, very nice. I, I, I would argue that ben adam l'chavero your intention matters very little. Hmm. If I give if I give a beggar uh, a dollar, it really doesn't matter if I if my heart was whole or I was in a bad mood or a good mood or I, you know, the the, the dollar does good work one way or the other. Ben Adam Lamakom, I would argue that the purpose of those is to train you to do the mitzvot Ben Adam um, that that's their real purpose is to is to change you so that you then become more generous, more just, more to, the, the things that act out in the world. Um, mm-hmm. So they obviously require some intention because if we just say a bracha and, not, and don't think about it, it doesn't it doesn't do anything to change you internally, and 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 it has no power. But so so I think you have to differentiate between those two kinds at least at least those two kinds. Okay, so uh, oh, sorry. We have, right, so just to make sure we're all on the same page with terms. So, Ben Adam Lechaviro means interpersonal mitzvot, and Ben Adam Makol means a mitzvot between the human and the divine. And Sidney was saying that a mitzvah that, in a sense, does social good, it doesn't really matter what you're thinking about when you do it because the, um, the result of the action is, going, is, the, is the purpose. Whereas when it mitzvot between a person and God, actually, in, in a way, the point, and maybe harkening back to what Lauren was saying, the point is that actually it's supposed to be transformative in some way. It's supposed to form you to be a better person, someone, again, modeled after God in that way. And, and Sidney's actually walking in the path here of the Ramban, the Nachmanides, the 13th century Spanish mystic and commentator, who said that the actually ultimate purpose of mitzvot is that actually they induce in us some kind of rachmanut, right? They make us, they have rachmonis, right? They give rachmanis of mir. We become more compassionate people, that it's supposed to change our character fundamentally. Okay, last comment. I heard who was that that was speaking up? Noah. Noah, wonderful. Great. No, no, please, please, please. Um, Bring us home. So I think I was going to say something similar to you said, uh, but I would add a couple of things. First of all, if you only do a mitzvah like like um, you know the whole bit about like leaving the corners of the fields and all the things that are are essentially charitable or, or um, you know tikkun uh, olam, if you only could do those with kavana, you'd almost have you'd almost have a, a, a get out of jail free card. Right? Oh, I'm in a bad mood, so I guess I can I have to glean my whole field and take everything for myself today. Mm. And so, and so I think that's one reason why, like, it doesn't matter where you're at, doesn't matter where your head's at, uh, you know, that, that mitzvah is going to apply to you. So, so I would think you shouldn't have to have kavanah, no matter what. Uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. And I also see, um, I see the value of 
being transformed by the mitzvah of Adam Nechaviro, of, of the mitzvah of Tikkun Olam, right? So mm-hmm. maybe you were in a bad mood, maybe you didn't feel like giving the dollar, but you gave it and you saw what happened. You gave it and you had an interpersonal connection with another person. You you let stuff in your field and, and maybe you actually end up feeling a little bit better about yourself or better about what you're doing. Mm-hmm. I think that that's, you know, like, like what we know today about kinds of cognitive behavioral therapies, right? Change your behavior and that changes yourself. You learn and you're transformed through what you do as well. Okay. Wow. Okay. So I think here, what I'm hearing from you, Noah, is actually the relationship between the ideal and the real, right? That there, and that can go both ways, right? The positive relationship is that kavana, right? Intention in a mitzvah gives us an opportunity to, to perform it in a way in which it really fulfills its full function and it has its full intended result. But the, the the challenging consequence of that though is also that it also sets the bar very high, such that if we identify or conflate mitzvah with intention, then when we're not feeling it, or when we don't have it in us, then the mitzvah doesn't get done. Right, so there's some kind of sense in which there's the mitzvah that has its own inherent worth but on the other hand, an empty mitzvah, right? A mitzvah that's desiccate and, 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 and evacuated of, in, of personal intention, then we can, I think we see that it's like, it's not, you know, it's not so geschmack anymore, right? It doesn't taste so good. So I think we're, we're exactly where, where I'm so impressed by this like thinking, right? That like we just, it, it makes so much sense to us. And the insights that I'm hearing from all of you, I think are really touching at so many different aspects of what we're getting at. That a mitzvah, which is something we do all the time, is both an amazing gift and also an amazing challenge. Right? We have so many opportunities to worship, right? to serve God, to be holy, to serve a good purpose, to enact righteousness, to help to try to rectify the world in some way. But on the other hand, um, that also creates a very high standard in terms of what it is that we're required or asked to do. And that puts us in a crux, right? Because it's so easy for mitzvahs just to turn into rote behavior, right? Just to something you just kind of do automatically, automatism, without really thinking about it. And that's, I think, the spiritual challenge, but maybe also like an internal challenge within mitzvah as well. So I think your insights are brilliant, and of course it's the case, the wisdom of the generations, the rabbis are on a very similar page. And you're not even, we're not even in the Gemara yet, but still, we're holding in the Parsha. So that's good. Okay, so we'll start just by looking at the Mishnah. So this is the first Mishnah of the second chapter of Masachas Brachas. All right, we'll start. Um, so I'll, I'll read it, and I'll make sure that we'll have time. And I broke everything into little sections. And then there's little discussions after every section. So we'll give it, we'll do it chunk by chunk, and we'll get through as much as we can. Okay, so we'll start with the Mishnah. If one were reading Torah, and the time for reciting the Shema arrived, if one intended one's mind, one is discharged. And if one were in between its sections, one can inquire after another's well-being and reply. If one were in the midst of a section, one can inquire out of fear and reply. These are the words of Rebbe Meir. But Rebbe Yehuda says, if one were in the midst of a section, one can inquire out of fear and reply out of respect. And if one were in between sections, one can inquire out of respect and respond shalom to anybody. Now, this itself we see, as I broke up in the, in the Hebrew sections, the Mishnah itself has 
two topics that it's getting at. And then in the second topic, we actually have our first debate, our first machlaikas, right? Our first um, disagreement between rabbis. So let's just hit the first part of it first. What's the situation that the Mishnah is describing in the first section, which is called the Rasha, the first part of the Mishnah? If one is in the midst of doing what? If one is in the midst of reading Torah. Good. All right. um, You're reading then, Torah. Then, now, what does right, that say about ancient study practices we're already seeing evidence of? It would have been usual then to be reading the Torah. Now, is this not so unusual? Is this the assumption that you're reading for yourself or you're reading with other people? You're reading for them. Unclear. Right. Unclear. And would that make a difference? It could very well. We don't know yet. More important in some ways, figuring out what it's saying is also figuring out what it's not saying. Isn't, right. isn't, the, isn't, the, isn't the time for the Shema in the Mishnah dawn? Which means you're sort of reading Torah, you know, very early in the morning. Okay, so there's two there's two times we're required to say the Shema, morning and evening, and the Shema, as we can induce from this Mishnah, is made of different sections, right? We know the Shema has three paragraphs: the Shema and Vihavta, that's one paragraph; the Hayyim Shema, second paragraph; and Vayomer is the third paragraph. Okay, so we are someone is reading Torah during the time in which one is required to say the Shema. So that's either early in the morning or late at night, right? Or ha not late at night, as evening comes. And, and suddenly, boom, it happens upon you that you need to say the Shema. But it seems like you're in the middle of doing something. And it seems like also what you're doing is, I guess coincidentally, reading the section of the Torah, that's the Shema. I guess, right? Because otherwise, how would this make sense? You're reading Torah, and then the time for saying Shema, and if you intended your mind, then you did it. So it seems like there's something similar between Torah and Shema. This is something that's very important to note about the Shema. What is the Shema not? Davening. The Shema in the rabbinic mind is not part of prayer. Nowadays it is. But to the rabbis and their understanding of worship, there's two mitzvot, and they're discrete. They're saying the Shema, and they're saying the Amidah, which is called tefillah, prayer. Saying the Shema is something that is more like your required daily textual um, regimen, right? You need to learn this part of the Torah every day, and it's a part of the Torah that is what uh, academics have called a doxology. Right, it is a section of text that teaches us what we're supposed to believe. So if you're reading the Torah and you happen to be in the section that's the Shema, then what do you have to do to make sure you've fulfilled your mitzvah? Or rather, if you don't do it, how did you miss your chance? If you're just reading Torah, for what purpose? That's the question. Because if you're about to read the section of the Shema, right, in Deuteronomy 6, and the time for Shema arrives, and you read that section, but all you're intending to do is just be steiging, right? You're just learning Torah. Did you did you fulfill your mitzvah or not? 
No, you locked the coven up. No, because you didn't have the Kavana to do it. But in this case, what does Kavana mean? It's in your mind that while you're reading the bit about the Shema, that your intention is not only to read from the Torah, but it's also to fulfill your mitzvah of saying the Shema at good. that time. Very good. So Kavana here is not the way we, in the Mishnah, is not the way we tend to generally think about Kavana. Right, Kavana, we nowadays think of like, oh, it's like meditation or something like that, right? Like really thinking about the meaning of the words. But here, like that's an inside form of Kavana, right? That's about the that's about the the the, the content of what you're saying, right? Thinking about the content of what you're saying. But Lauren's quite right that here actually it's an external Kavana that we're thinking about. Because you're thinking about the task, not about the content. You're thinking about the container not about what's inside, all right? Because you are intending when you say the Shema to be doing it for this purpose. It's purposiveness, maybe more than intention. Okay, that's the section we're gonna be focusing on when we look at the Gemara in a few minutes. But I want to include the rest of the Mishnah because it's very, very interesting. And I don't wanna get into it too deep, but if you were just to summarize the diff who is the, and this is just a good way to start thinking, because I'll tell you, uh, 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 and I, I maybe even encourage, have a piece of scrap paper next to you during this class, because it's very helpful to draw little charts, to just write down people's names and just write bullet points of what their positions are, because it helps you keep everything in mind. So thinking schematically helps a lot with the Gemara, because the Gemara, much like the computer in some ways, thinks differentially. It's always playing people against each other to help sharpen the positions. So if you were to compare and contrast Rebbe Meir versus Rebbe Yehuda, Rebbe Meir and Rebbe Yehuda, who's the more hardcore of them? Who's the more stringent, the more machmir, as we would say in Hebrew? In another way of maybe framing that so we understand the terms, who requires more of you? Whose position is more permissive and whose is less permissive? Who's more liberal? Yes. Looks like Rabbi Yehuda is more liberal. That, yeah, correct. Good. Yeah, listen, there's, we can like, I mean, if someone wants to challenge that, please feel free. Sometimes like things are just right. Yes, that is correct. Rabbi Yehuda is more liberal because he lets you say more things, right? Liberal in like the technical sense in terms of you have more liberties. Right, you are allowed to do more in Rabbi Yehuda's position. Rabbi Yehuda's position is that there are fewer circumstances in which you need to refrain. Right, so to Rabbi Meir, the only time you're allowed to interrupt the stream of the Shema is when? Basically when you're fearing for your well-being. Right, and not only that, um, but you're, that's, that's when you're allowed to like interrupt yourself when you're in the middle of a paragraph. But in between sections, in between sections, then you have a little bit more leeway because you can you can even um, initiate asking someone's well-being, and just because you just like care about them. But here, just one thing I want to make sure that we get implicitly from this is that the rabbis already have a notion of there being different sections of the Shema that stand that they are connected to each other, but the notion that there's interstitial space between them is also very important. There's breaks, right? There's partial breaks between the different paragraphs. Rabbi Yehuda says that you're allowed to um, 
you're allowed to ask somebody, you're allowed to interrupt your Shema out of fear, but you can even reply to somebody who initiated it just because you respect them. You don't need to be worried about them hurting you or throwing you in jail or something like that. Like, you know, if like the president walks up, or the, maybe think of the ancient world, right? Like a noble person walks up to you, and if you don't say hello to them or like, oh, good day, noble person, good day, then you're like, you're, you're, you're risking bodily harm. But here in this case, he said you can even actually reply to somebody saying, hey, Josh, what's up? Right? And you're like, oh, hey, what's going on, man? You're allowed to do that even in the middle of a paragraph of the Shema. And you can initiate in the middle to anybody. Just to anybody. So Rabbi Yehuda is a more like liberal position in the sense that he's like, he's less, he's less of like, uh, he's less concerned about, um, about protecting the integrity of the Shema or what have you. Yeah. Could, could, could I just ask, I mean, it's not perhaps totally germane, but yeah. the word well-being in Rabbi Meir's position and the word respect in Rabbi Yehuda's position in Hebrew mm -hmm. appear to be the same word. So the translator has done something weird and as far as I can see. I'm the, I'm the weirdo. Um, yeah, I mean, shalom, uh, I mean, I was just trying to translate, I, I think, based in use. So shalom, like shleimut, does actually mean well-being. Um, and that's why we, you know, the word shalim means complete or whole. Um, so when you say, like, shalom, when you're, you know, you're saying, like, sh uh, shalom rabbi, right? When you say shalom rabbi, what you're doing is not just saying hi, you're actually, like, checking in with them to see how they're doing. No, but 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 both the word is kavod in both places, isn't it? Mipnea kavod meshiv. Right. No. So kavod here is um. Yeah. So no kavod is respect. Is is respect. Oh, sorry. Inquire. So shoel I translate as inquire after someone's well-being. That's just like a paraphrastic translation I use. So when you are you know why? Thank you for bringing that up, Sydney. It's because it's it's short for shilat shalom. Right, so sho'el here is just like a shortened form of leech ol shalom, which means to ask after someone's well-being. So kavod, yeah, so the terms are kavod, that's someone you respect. Yir'ah is someone you're scared of. Right, and those are the two excuses that Rabbi Meir gives you. Whereas Rabbi Yehuda, he's, you know, he, for him, in between the paragraphs, you're allowed just to initiate with this, you know, anybody who just passes you by because you like being a friendly person. But are both rabbis saying that as long as you're thinking about doing the Shema, then then you're okay. Or is only Rabbi Meir saying that and not Rabbi Yehuda? Good. So these are this is a separate halachic inyan. This is a separate question, and the question is sorry, it's separate but related. And thank you for bringing that back in, uh, Susie. The reason it's related is because exactly as you're intuiting, that it has to do with the respect, in a sense, that you're according the mitzvah of the Shema. Because if you're just interrupting it willy-nilly, then what kind of intention is that? Or rather, are you giving yourself the conditions in which you're able to be mindful about it? Right? Can you be concentrating on the Shema if you're you know, thinking about texting your friend or something like that, right? If you're thinking about saying hi to somebody passing by, then you're not able to really concentrate. So that's kavana as a sense of concentration. But it's a different question because here the question is, what are you allowed to do? I mean, but maybe it's, it's to the point. How are you allowed to qualify or to modify your kavana because of social constraints or because of social uh, uh, mores or graces? But it's exactly. But it, I think you're 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 getting at something exactly right, which is why it's all part of one mishnah. It's all in the same mishnah because it's connected to the question of. When you do this thing, how do you do it in a way that shows that you're according this act with respect? 
right? You're according the Shema the dignity that it deserves. And here we get to kind of going back to our pretextual discussion. If we were to be saying mitzvot are the ways in which we are, um, they're the main ways in which we connect with God, the main ways in which we bring holiness into the world, and yet we treat them with a cavalier disregard, right? Like very casually and not in a sense in which they're being, um, you know, related to in a precious manner or, or a dignified manner. And that says something, right, about the tools that we're using. It says something about the religion that we're practicing, if we're not taking it seriously, if it's not conditioning our behavior. We get to move to the Gemara, Susie? Yeah, I mean, I was just, I was just gonna suggest that if, if Rabbi Mayer is saying that, oh, as long as you're thinking about doing the Shema, like as long as you're thinking it in your head while you're having another conversation, then in a weird sort of way, that rabbi is more lax than Rabbi Yehuda that's like, okay, we'll do the Shema, take a break, say hi to a person, keep doing the Shema. <laughs> like, Uh-huh, interesting. Okay, so you're saying that Rabbi Mayer might have a more expansive vision of what the Shema can entail? Yeah. Right. So, good. Okay. Good question. And here it brings us back to our original, actually, the first section of the Mishnah. When we say the word kore, right, which means to read, when we say read, what do we mean? Right. So interestingly, in the Talmud, actually, as well, I mean, even the word Mishnah, right? The word Mishnah in the in the rabbinic Hebrew isn't the word Mishnah. It's actually the word matnitin. That's how we see it in Talmud and matnitin, and even the word Mishnah. It all comes from the word shnayim. And what's Shnayim in Hebrew? Two. Two. Yeah, because what does it mean to learn? It means to recite, or rather to repeat to yourself. It is very much of a modern reading practice to read in your head. Reading out loud is the way that ancient people read. Because usually they weren't reading out of a book. They were reading out of their heads, right? This is an oral text. And since it's an oral text, the way that you read it isn't just you think about it. You actually say it, to, you like mutter it to yourself, you know, like a, like a weirdo. Now, it's probably the case, though, that when it says reading the Torah, they have the scroll in front of them because it's the Torah, right? So they have the Torah, they're reading it, they happen upon the Shema section, and they have a chance to say it, right? But when we generally think about reading, it's happening out loud. And even with the scroll, I would say most likely it's happening out loud. So I don't know if it's that case that you're, can, can you continue doing the Shema if you're doing something else with your mouth? What kind of Kavana is that? And I'm not saying that in a suggestive way. That's the question. What kind of Kavana would that be? Right? So we're left with some really provocative and interesting questions just through this Mishnah. Even though the Mishnah is like very clear about what you can do, what you can't do. But we're left with a lot of openings. And that's exactly where the Gemara is going to get into it. That's what makes a Sugya. Because the Mishnah is both, is, is underdetermined. Right? It, it, we haven't made it mean as much as we can make it mean. So the Gemara is going to make it mean so much more. It's going to proliferate in meanings, and it's going to be glorious. So uh, I wanted to add a comment about uh, reading. Uh, Please. The, 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 the Roman emperor, uh, the Roman scholar Cicero, is reported to have said, I could not read the letter you sent because I had a sore throat. Very nice. Great. Some good reading. Uh, and the idea of reading in one's head uh, was was uh, quite new. And uh, uh, that particular quote is used everywhere where people are trying to explain the different, you know, how 
the idea of reading in your head developed and it developed certainly uh, later than, uh, certainly maybe concomitant, but maybe much later than the uh, than Mishnah times. Great, great. All right, well, there we go. K Kikoro, perhaps a Talmudic rabbi himself. Okay, so here we'll start with the Gemara. And here's the Gemara picks up the question. And when it says Shema Mina, funny enough, they're using the word Shema, but it doesn't mean to listen. In the Talmud, Shema means to learn. It's like, you know, like, oh, I hear you, I hear you, right? Like you say it to a friend, like, I hear you, I hear you, right? So we hear from this, we learn from this. What? Namely, mitzvot srichot kavana. We learn from the Mishnah that we saw that mitzvahs need kavana. What? How? How do we get there? How do we move from a parat to a kalal, right? From a particular instance about a specific mitzvah, saying the Shema, to a general principle that all mitzvot need kavana. That seems to be like, so the Shema becomes paradigmatic. It becomes a binyan av, becomes a paradigm for the fact that mitzvot require kavana. But again, what kavana entails in this, in the Mishnah context, it seemed pretty clear that kavana meant that you are aware that what you're doing is fulfilling the mitzvah of the Shema. And is that all that that means, though? Because here is where the prat and the klal, the specific and the general, right, the specific case of the Shema and what it entails, and the general idea that mitzvot require kavanah, this is where they start to, in a sense, bump up against each other in some ways. Okay. So, my im kivain libo, Likrot, likrot, v'hakakari, b'kori lehagia. So it says, what does it mean if you intended your heart? It means you're reading. Now pause before we get to the objection. How is that a problem for the mission to say that, for the Gemara to say that? Kavana is supposed to in, uh, imply some kind of change, right? You've done something different once you've like flipped the Kavana switch. But the situation you're already in is that you're reading. So it can't be the case that what we're talking about is just reading. We need to be talking about something more than just reading. Right, you're already reading the Torah, but if you read the Torah and you just didn't do anything different, you wouldn't have fulfilled the mitzvah of the Shema. So it can't just be reading. Vahakare, he's already reading, right? The person who's doing it is already reading. So what's the difference? Ah, in this case, what does Kavana mean? Bikore lahagia. Kore lahagia means you're reading the text to check it. Like you're proofreading it. That's what it means now. Or like studying. Mm -hmm. Like like you're studying the Torah. You aren't davening. You're you're very nice. Instead of just reading it, like you read a newspaper, now what you're doing is you are you are studying it, right? You are focusing your attention on it. That's different, though, isn't it? In the Mishnah, it seemed just from just like just from looking at the Mishnah, 
what we're asked to do is just to remember that what you're doing right now is fulfilling the mitzvah of the Shema. Great, Zeit But here now we've moved from talking about the container to now actually thinking about the content. Now you have to be focusing on the words, and that's what it means to do to do the Shema with with Kavana. I mean, here we're left with a really interesting dilemma. Is Kavana tailored differently to each and every mitzvah? To do mitzvah with Kavana, does it mean actually you need to do you need to fulfill the specific ideal of each mitzvah, or is it that now what we have we have itself like a paradigmatic model of what kavana means in which what you're doing is you're paying attention to the specific action that you're doing or you're paying attention to the specific thing because what you're not just doing anymore is just kind of just reading it right you're not just like muttering it to yourself anymore now you are paying attention and here specific korela hagia means you're checking the torah scroll to make sure there's no errors in it but it can't be the case that that's what the Gemara is saying that you're doing when you're reading the Shema. It means, I think, that that's the kind of way that you're reading. You are paying attention to the specificity of each and every word. Maybe not even to its meaning, though, but at least to the, to the words itself that you're saying. Right? You are aware of what you're doing. You're not just letting your, you're not just like moving your mouth as your eyes track to the page. Josh, sorry if this is a bad time to interrupt. No, it's fine. Um, so I'm wondering, um, are you aware or anybody else on the Zoom aware of, a, I don't know, like any kind of like a literature or scripture within the Jewish tradition that kind of plays on that idea in the sense that like maybe even somebody, you know, if only like fictionally in some kind of fantastical way does find an error in the Shema? Um... I mean, uh, we have a lot of uh, halachic literature about if in the middle of reading Torah in synagogue, you realize that something's wrong. Um, something is wrong in the text. Yeah, yeah, like like this, like like a, like a letter flaked off, or maybe there was a scribal error or something like that. Um, if you're if you have another Torah scroll ready, you should swap it as soon as you can. But you shouldn't interrupt in the middle of a pasuk, or maybe you should even finish the. The section that you were reading, like you shouldn't, you shouldn't end it in a way that again disgraces or or undercuts the dignity of the act that you're doing. So yeah, there's, there's, and then you have to make sure that the Torah scroll that you put away, you have to make sure you actually tie the um, the gartel around the outside of the mantle to make sure that whoever sees it knows that it's not kosher, and then you get it fixed by a scribe as soon as you can. Oh, interesting. Thank you. Sure. Okay, so what we've seen here is already like, you know, from the outset, it's so subtle, but already we see the way in which, by the way, who's the Gemara here, right? Who's the, who's, whose position is this? Nobody, we don't know, it's anonymous, right? This is just the anonymous voice of the Gemara stirring up trouble, right? Just already making some trouble. Um, so back to the Mishnah, actually, if you saw, so we have two named uh, tradents. We have Rebbe Meir and we have Rebbe Yehuda. But in this person is called the Tanakama, the first Mishnah. The first Mishnah person is often identified with Rebbe Meir. That's the tradition that the Tanakama is Rebbe Meir because it was like his, um, it's his kind of original version of the text that we're using that, that Rebbe Yehuda Nasi put together. But uh, since he's named right after, it seems like it's probably somebody else. 
Um, okay, so we've already changed the um, nature or the extent of what Kavana entails. It, we moved it from just thinking about the action itself to thinking about the content of the action, right? Just not just thinking about the fact that you're doing it, but thinking about what you're doing. We've already seen the way in which Kavana is a plastic term, right? It can be molded and shaped in any in a number of different intentions. It can be molded in a number of different ways that it means something. But we see already the way in which the Shema is it actually a good paradigm when we just think about mitzvot in general, because the Shema is a very contentful mitzvah. It's full of words. So maybe something that is not prayer but looks a lot like prayer might be muddying the waters in terms of this con in terms of this of this topic. So something to think about. Okay. So we keep on moving forward in the Gemara. And here we have another Tanaitic statement. So as said before, two basic groups of rabbis. There's the Tanaim, and they're the rabbis that you find in the Mishnah, and in also another collection called the Tosefta. And there's the Amoraim. The Amoraim are the rabbis that are only in the Gemara, right? They're the later ones. So when you see the Gemara say Tanu Rabbanan, because you see the Tanna thing, you know it's coming from Mishnah people. You know it's coming from the Tanaim. So now the editor of the Gemara is going to be quoting an early source to try to recontextualize what the Mishnah means. It's quoting rabbis against rabbis. Um, so we'll see what they're going to try to do. So it says, Kriyat Shema Kichtava. So the rabbis taught the Kriyat Shema should be read as it is written. These are the words of Rabbi Yehuda, Hanasi. These are the words of Rabbi, right? Rabbi. <laughs> And then the sages, right, and a non, the, just kind of everybody else in the school, the other, you know, everyone else argues against him and says, in any language, whoa, okay, how did the discussion now completely change? Before it was about, are you paying attention to what you're doing? But now what's the, con what's the, what's the question in hand, at hand? Can you read it in Hebrew or Greek? Punct, pricey small. Exactly, that's exactly what we're getting at. When you, I mean, this is really a question about can you do the Shema in other languages? And now that's the question of Kavana as well. Or rather, what really matters? Meaning or action? Now, I remember from before, Eric was saying, what's a mitzvah? A mitzvah is a way of connecting yourself to the long generational epic of the Jewish people. Ah, well, I can see then from that kind of, let's say, cultural perspective, anthropological perspective, that there's something to be said about doing it the way that, the, that your ancestors did it. And your ancestors did it in Hebrew, and that's why it's important to keep the Latin mass. I mean, sorry, to keep the prayers in Hebrew in synagogue. Right? That's why it's very important. But you can see somebody else come along and say, sure, but if you're just moving your mouth and you don't even know what it means anymore because it's just gobbledygook to you, then what's the point of praying in Hebrew? You shouldn't you be saying it in a way that means something that you understand. I had a friend who lived in New Jersey, God forgive him, who actually organized a, a, a minion, who organized a prayer group in which they did all of the prayers in English. Every single one. Because to the halachic position he held by, that's allowed. And it is allowed. It is out there, actually. The Rambam agrees. You're allowed to do all the prayers in English. Every single one of them. Except for a couple little exceptions. 
So we've suddenly now changed the question from when we say kavana, do we mean you need to pay attention to what you're doing to now, do you need to understand what you're doing? So we've moved from the Mishnah in which the question is, do you know the, do you know the fact of what you're doing? To the first position in the Gemara, which is, do you know what it is that you're doing? And now we've gone even further inside, and it's that, do you know the meaning of what you're doing? All right, we move from the outside to the middle layer, to the, to the, to the, intent, to the intention and the content itself. See the, the movement, movement inside. And yet the word remains the same, because kavana is a famously slippery word. It's unclear what it means even to the rabbis. Or rather, maybe it means many things. Okay. And here's where kind of the rubber hits the road. Because a big part of the way in which the Talmud works is that it's not just people grabbing things out of, mid, out of midair. It's always the, the Gemara specifically is based in trying to root it in some way in Torah. So uh, a very uh, a very important uh, professor named uh, David Halivni, um, very important scholar of Talmud, he says in a sense there's two kinds of rabbinics, of rabbinic literature. There's Mishnah and there's Midrash. And what's the difference between the two? Mishnah just tells you what you're supposed to do. Let's go back to the Mishnah. When you're reading the Torah and the time comes to say the Shema, if you intend your heart, you're good. Great. Is there a source that it's quoting? What's the source? The rabbis. That's the source. Right? Now, the rabbis have a Masorah, right? They have a tradition that goes all the way back to Sinai, right? That's in the first Merkei But there's no named source. Midrash is an attempt to try to connect authoritative statements with an authoritative source. Namely, how does Rabbi derive his principle that the Shema needs to be read in Hebrew as it's written in the Torah? Where does that come from? And that's where we get to Midrash. But again, Midrash here means trying to see how we derive one from another. Midrash means to um, pursue, right? Doresh means to pursue, but it can here mean to um, extract, right? To see the way in which this principle is connected to the text. So it says, my taima de Rebbe, what's Rebbe's rationale? What's his reason? Because the verse says, vihayu, behavayatan yihiyu. As it is, so should it be. It's because the claim here is that ra Rabbi is motivated by the fact that in the Shema it says, Vihayu, these words that I command to you this day, right? These words which I command to you today, they shall be on your heart. These words, right? As they are, so shall they be. Because it says the words, Vihayu, it's like the code of the Shema is telling you how you're supposed to do it. You're supposed to read the instructions that come with the Shema. And literally, as you read the Shema, it tells you what you're supposed to do with it. Place them as words on your hand, place them close to your heart, place them between your, on your eyes. And as they are, so should they be. Okay, so we, we've already found, again, but who is, who is it that's finding? Do you, do you notice the shift, by the way? What language are we in now? 
If you see lots of olives at the ends of words, what language are we in? Aramaic. Aramaic. Right, so we've moved from the Tanaitic Hebrew to the to the Stam or the Amoraic Aramaic. Right? So we, when you see the language shift, it means that here they're quoting a debate between two older rabbis, Rabbi and the Chachamim. But here we have commentary on the commentary. We have meta commentary happening inside. And it's not telling you explicitly, but the editor of the Talmud, editors, you know, again, the editorial voice is weaving together, it's creating this interstitial tissue, these sinews that connect these discrete traditions, but making them into a conversation. It's trying to make them talk to each other. It's literally the word masechta or masechet means weaving because that's what it is that the Talmud's doing. The editorial art of the Talmud is taking all of these ideas and all of these opinions and all of these positions and then weaving them together into a conversation and an argument that spans hundreds of years. It's beautiful and dizzying and, and glorious. And we're inside, we're inside of it. All right, and Rabbanan, what's their reason behind their position? Again, to, to remind us, Rabbi says you need to do it as it's written, i.e., in Hebrew. And the rabbis say you can do it in any language that you understand. So what justifies rabbi is that it says, Vihayu, right? Do it as it is. It says it right there in the text. So what's the reason for the rabbis? It's right there in the first word. It says in the verse, remember, Shema for the rabbis doesn't just mean to listen. It means to understand. It means to learn. And it brings us all the way back to the Mishnah, because what's the Shema supposed to be? Your daily quotient of Torah learning. If you're just reading it, it because you're saying some kind of magical Shema prayer, then you're not really doing the Shema anymore. You're just saying the words. You're not learning. So the rabbis are saying, if you are doing the external without any internal, you're just saying the words, but you don't have any meaning, then you're not really doing the Shema. The only way you can do the Shema is if you understand what you're doing. So you need to do it in a language you understand. Now, here's a question. Do you think the rabbis have an idea? Do you think the rabbis are kind of doing what we call in halacha, a lechatchila versus bidyeved? Lechatchila means the ideal. Bidyeved means the real, right? Lechatchila, you should do it in Hebrew, right? Because it's the way it is. But bidyeved, if you don't know Hebrew, your Hebrew is not so good. You can do it in Greek, right? You can do it in Aramaic. You can do it in whatever. You do it in English even. It's fine. Can you, can you ex explain those terms? Because I know them in modern Hebrew and they have to do with time, right? Beginning and, and retroactive. Yeah. So lichatila means ideal, right? Like you're able to, um, I mean, it means like kind of if you're able to set everything up right, nothing goes wrong, right? Ideally. And Bidyeved is often translated as, as ex post facto. But by that, what we really mean is something went wrong. Right? It's the ideal or the adaptive. Lechatchila is when you don't need to intervene or make any changes because everything goes smoothly. Bidyeved is if some kind of mitigating factor occurs, what kinds of changes can you make, but still, in some sense, get it done? Right? Still fulfill what you need to do. That makes sense? Um, 
So, you know, often what you'll see is L'Chathchil and B'Yavid use in kashrut cases, right, in, tor in dietary laws. You know, you're making a soup on the stove or whatever, and you're letting the soup bubble, and then suddenly some milk falls into the chicken soup, right? So the question, you're not, you're not allowed to do that on purpose, or you're not allowed to pour milk into the chicken soup. That's, that's bad. Don't do it. But if milk falls into the chicken soup because your, your rascally uh, cat knocks over a little bottle of milk and a little bit of milk falls in, Bidiyevet, is the soup still okay? And it depends on the amount of milk versus the volume of the soup. But that's Lechatchila versus Bidiyevet. It's Bidiyevet is figuring things out after something goes wrong. So here the Bidiyevet is you don't know Hebrew, right? If you don't know Hebrew, are the rabbi saying there, you can, the point is that you say the meaning of the Shema and it doesn't matter what language you're in? Or are the rabbi saying that actually it does matter and ideally it should be in Hebrew? Ideally, we agree with rabbi. But if you don't know Hebrew, then fine, you can still get it done. It's not gonna, it's not gonna knock you out of the game. Right, and the, the principle I'm trying to draw from that is that here again, we have, I think one of the real um, dynamics of this conversation about intention, that as we actually got to in the very beginning of the class, does it set at times perhaps is the risk that it sets an unreachable standard? Right, that the ideal becomes something that becomes overwhelming or something that becomes preventative, right? It means, oh, I just can't do it. I just, you know, I don't have the spoons, right? I just like don't have it in me to do it anymore. I can't do it. And if you, ha you hit that, like, I can't do it, what do you do? So we have, again, like this, this beautiful ideal of mitzvah that's done in a way in which you're manifesting God's presence in the world and you're aware of the connection you're forming between yourself and the divine connection you're forming between yourself and other people, right? This, like, this way in which mitzvah is worship. But on the other hand, um, there's a notion that mitzvah is something that needs to get done, right? It's, is it something that you're supposed to do or is it something that needs to get done? Is it the you that's doing it, the subject, or is it the thing, the object? And if it's about the object, if it's about the thing that needs to get done, then perhaps all these idealistic conditions about intention and meaning mean that actually you're going to miss a lot of opportunities because you're setting such an unreachable standard for yourself. Maybe it is a good idea to just be able just to kind of mutter through the Shema and that's fine. Right? What if you come, imagine this, you work a long day, right? You, you know, you're supposed to come home at five, you come home at eight o'clock PM. Someone gave you, you know, a thing in your inbox and you just had to like, you had to get it done. You couldn't leave the office. You come home and you're just like pooped. Can't, you're just, you're done. And the notion of having to say the Shema and think about every single word is just like, come on, are you serious? I can't do it. And the notion, but the, but the promise of actually being able to say the Shema and just kind of like run through it and just get it done. Maybe that's a gift. So we have so many different ways of thinking about Kavana here, right? You know, the way we, I think, probably started this, this, this uh, discussion or this topic thinking about it is thinking about it in terms of like how to make a mitzvah really mean something. But through this conversation, we see that Kavana actually has some potentially dangerous consequences to it because it perhaps creates a situation in which someone is finding themselves unable to manifest what they need to get it done in that kind of ideal fashion. Can they still have a place, right, in the ritual community? Do they still have a place in what it means to do something good? And I think these are really 
And like Kavana and Mitzvah holds all of these questions, but it's only through the Gemara coming at it from all these new angles that we're able to see the ways in which the conversation evolves and changes and represents itself in these new contexts. All right. Thoughts, insights, things that you want me to clarify, challenges, objections? I have a quick question. Oh, sorry, go ahead. It's okay, it's hard to see each other. Um, at, at the point when these were written, were, was everyone uh, obligated or doing the mitzvah or only like the people who studied Torah? Great. Great question. So it's both in the sense that when the rabbis are writing, they're not just thinking of, they're saying, this is Judaism. I'm defining Judaism when I'm writing the Mishnah. This is what Judaism entails. But not everybody was a reb, not everyone was in the rabbinic community when the Talmud was, was being made. So uh, while the rabbis were writing beyond themselves and trying to project a rabbinic Judaism, it was still in the for, it was still in the process of becoming itself, right? And it what I mean, it worked because we're all Jew, right? We're all rabbinic Jews. We're learning Gemara right at this moment, so it worked. Good job, rabbis. But it is this kind of notion, right? Like they are they are refashioning Judaism according to the way that they understand it, right? They are presenting Judaism according to the way that they understand it. Because so it, it, mm -hmm. the 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 reason for my question is that there doesn't it doesn't feel like there's that piece of there's no m mention of educating it's like should we do it in hebrew or should we do it in greek so that people understand it i'm like well why can't they just explain to the people who don't read hebrew what the meaning behind the prayer is like i i don't really understand hebrew but i know what the shema means <laughs> right like, so because right. the because the question that they're asking is when you come down to the black letter law right, right well, like when the rubber hits the road what are you going to do? Right. So like you can talk, you can think there's a lot of stuff in the Talmud about rabbinic pedagogy and about schools. And it says, you know, like uh, the, the world is sustained by the breath of children learning Torah. Right. So the notion that like rabbis had schools in which they're teaching people Torah, that's that's clear. Rabbis were teachers. That's what they were doing. But here the question is, when when you are needing to say the Shema, you don't you can't call your Hebrew tutor and be like, wait, quick, teach me the Hebrew for the Shema. You need to say the Shema. So the question is, can you do it in, do you have to do it in Hebrew or can you do it in, I don't know, Latvian or whatever? Right, so here, I mean, that's a great question because the I question guess, is, when we're I talking mean, about this, we're talking about an action point. Yeah, I guess because I'm thinking about it in terms of all the mitzvah, like it's sort of, in a weird sort of way, the piece that you're talking about when you come home and you're tired, but you, you have to sort of do it anyways. And sometimes it brings something back to you, sort of like you're tired and you don't want to go to the gym, but then you make it to the gym and you're like, oh, that was really good, right? Like, um, so there's lots of mitzvahs that I've quote unquote had to do in, in my life that, that it, it needed to be explained to me what, what the meaning behind the mitzvah was. And then after doing it and thinking about it for a while, sort of after the fact, it brought a lot more to me. Like not necessarily the action, but the understanding why I did it. Kind mm -hmm. of. Mm -hmm. The action too, the action of doing it too. But anyways, I just feel like there's like, there's this education piece that isn't mentioned at all. And I feel like it's, there's this assumption that anyone who's doing this already knows the, like, 
I don't know. I'm not articulating it well. So well, no, I think, but I think, yeah. I think the whole, I think the purpose of the Chachamim's counterpoint, right, that you can do it in any language is saying that it's, it's recognized that not everybody is like fluent in Hebrew and, or not even like fluent in Hebrew. Not everybody know, knows even the Hebrew of the Shema. Are they out of the game? Right. Can they just not do the mitzvah? And the answer they says, no, you can do it in the language in the vernacular. You're, you're asking like a more like long-term question in terms of like, when we think about this pedagogically, how do we get people to the ideal, right? How do we get people to rabbi world in which they can do it in Hebrew? And that's a good question. But when it comes to um, the, you know, when you're inside the moment, you can't, you know, you don't have the time to change. All you can do is do the thing. But what you're describing, I think maybe is another principle we see elsewhere in the Talmud says, says you start doing something for let's say ulterior purposes even, but then eventually you come to learn to do it for its own sake, right? So it recognize that's not quite the dynamic that you're describing because you're talking about like a, the progression of, of entering into, you know, performing a mitzvah in more of a full, more realized fashion. But I think the point is that the rabbis recognize that everything's a process. Right, things are you. You are in a you're in a process. So right? you're becoming and you're growing and you're maturing as a Jew. But here, the question is really, it's nine o'clock, and it's the time to say the Shema, and you got to do it. What happens? Right. What are you gonna do? And then the question then is, what does it take for you to be fulfilling the requirements that's that's asked of you? And that's changing here because we've seen a di very different versions of that. One is that you can say it and just be aware that you're doing it for the sake of the Shema. But that even leaves open what it is because now we're cracking open. When we say it, do we mean the Shema in Hebrew or do we mean the, do we mean the Shema in the vernacular? Or when we say we're reading it, what way are we reading it? Are we reading it in a way in which you're paying attention to each and every word? Or are you reading it in a way that just makes sure you get every word done? Right, so we've already reopened the conversation uh, reopened this question in so many ways and we haven't even come to like any form of a conclusion but that's Talmud for you it's the questions it's really about the question it's really about turning this into thinking can you find more ways to think about it okay I think someone else wanted to make a comment too I think Leon yeah um thanks um uh, actually it's a good kind of a good segue from uh this previous conversation, um, which is, I'm wondering if um, in any sense, the kind of intention of, you know, the, the, the Talmud, like putting together the text this way in terms of like um, the complexity of it, right? Like really almost accentuating the complexity um, and the overlapping kind of possibilities of the different rules and almost yeah. like the way that they, the, the rules, that are even discussed explicitly, almost like as a few times in, in the kind of conversations tonight, like it almost feels as if the, the complexity of the rules that are explicitly described almost implies an even further complexity, right? Like all these kind of open spaces. Is, is Do you think it's a step too far to say or to maybe think or wonder if it's like similar to what's going on in in the Zohar in terms of like the super abundance of kind of like metaphor where like, as you described in your kind of Kabbalah classic, this idea that it's almost kind of bringing you to a, a negative theology through the confusion. 
where at some point you just have to abandon the metaphor? Oh, the vault. Um, so the, I think part of the reason I wanted to make sure to do a class on Talmud is to show that like you can't understand Kabbalah without learning Gemara. And the reason you can't understand it is because it is basing itself in this proliferation of perspectives. Now, I don't think what it's trying to do is necessarily the result of it, I don't think is supposed to be confusion. The result of it is what we call pilpulta harifta. It's supposed to be sharpening you. But the only way to get there is through really getting into some dizzying stuff, right? Like this is part of the point of, of Talmud is that like Talmud is hard. It's hard on purpose. You know, like it is, um, it is there's a reason it is the, the crown jewel of Jewish learning because what is more, it's not about it's not about content. It's about process. You don't paskin from the Gemara, right? You don't um, the, you don't look at the Talmud as a reference book. Talmud is an experience, and that's the point of it. You le it's learning. It's not knowing. It's not knowledge. It's learning. It's really about learning how to think differently. Now, there are practical consequences that come out of it, but those practical consequences are the latest editions in which it's trying to be like, okay, the end of the discussion is this. <laughs> like, hilcha to this. Like, the halacha is this. And we actually see that. Here's pages, 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 pages at the end. And at the very end, it says, okay, the halacha is like Rebbe Mayer. Done. But who cares? Right? Who cares? Like the black letter law is Tana Rabbanan, Shema Yisrael Shem Alekeinu Shem Echad. Right? So here's what the rabbis say. The Shema. Ad kan kavana salev. That's the extent that you need to have kavana for. Just the first line. Debray Rebbe Meir. Rava says the halacha is like Rebbe Meir. Great. If that was the point, we could have skipped all of this. Now we did skip all of that, but not for that reason. We, um, the point isn't the conclusion. Talmud mm -hmm. is about the process. Because mm. it's really about learning how to think, how to think better, how to think more critically, how to not and take anything for granted or take anything in assumption. Yeah, right. Sorry, I sorry. I'm sure there's other people who want to, but just very quickly, like well, is, I mean, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna avail myself my um, my my grand uh, uh, power in a moment because I want to do a little bit more before we close. But yeah, la okay. last comment, Leon. Well, maybe just move on to some, if somebody else has something, maybe just move on. I, I can ask my. Well, I'm, I'm, I, so I'm going to, I'm going to abuse my authority. I'm going to, I'm going to move us just to one more, one more little section of the text. I want to make sure we do that because I, I do want to close at nine. I think more than an hour okay. and a half is too much for anyone on Zoom. Okay. Um, but great points, like great points about like, so this is the, I mean, there's a reason the, the Babylonian Talmud won, right? Oh, like what's the most important land in the, in the, in the Jewish religion? Well, it's Israel, right? except it's the exile Talmud that won, right? There is a Palestinian Talmud, the Talmud Yerushalmi, but it is an academic book. It's not a book that's normative. The Talmud that won the day was the Babylonian Talmud. And because the Babylonian Talmud is way more interesting, the, the, um, the Talmud Yerushalmi is much more like the Mishnah. It's this rabbi said this, this rabbi said that, this rabbi said this, with very little in between. But what makes the Bavli the Bavli, what makes the, like the Babylonian Talmud the, the Talmud, is, all of the, is, is, that, is that it's about the dialectic. It's about the pinging back and forth and trying to swing and figure everything out from every single facet. It doesn't let it, doesn't let it rest until it's over.
that's the that's like real Gomorrah. Okay, so we get to this. There's a lot of very interesting stuff about hermeneutics, which we're actually going to be passing because it's a little bit too complex to get into now. Um, but here we see um, near the end we see a different discussion, and the question that's asked is. So basically what we move into is a question about when we, um, when, when it says that the Shema requires intention, does that mean the whole Shema or does that requirement actually break off in the middle? And I think that is actually drawing from the mission that we saw in which there was a recognition of the difference between sections, right? That sections kind of end. So here again, the question about intention becomes one of human capacity, namely, is it too much to expect a person to have kavanah for the full three paragraphs of the Shema? Is that too much to ask? Because again, maybe you're distracted, maybe you're tired, maybe the king is you know, walking before you, right? So when we talk about the situations in which we can have an ideal religious performance, can we create the conditions in which that's actually achievable, right? In which we can actually have the ideal Shema I think that's what the question ends up becoming, right? Because when we talk about the ideal and the real, that's like what we're getting at with Kavanah. Can we actually try to create a situation in which we actually get to have the ideal sometimes? It's not like we always have to compromise. Because if it was the situation in which we had, we had to have Kavanah for the full three paragraphs of the Shema, how often in your life would you really have a good Shema? Right, but if we all, but if but if the requirement to have kavanah stops earlier, right? Like let's say after the first paragraph, then that becomes something in which you can like reliably have in your life, in which you get to have the real shema, and that to be an accessible, right, an accessible expectation. I think here what we really are thinking about is accessibility. Maybe not quite in the ways in which we think about it today in terms of like disability uh, politics and accessibility in those regards, but maybe not so dissimilar in the sense of there are a lot of impinging and contingent factors. Can we create a condition or can we, can we refashion the mitzvah such that it's something that is accessible for people? People with lots of competing time commitments, lots of competing you know, uh, things on your attention. The baby is crying, right? You need to feed the baby. Can you say the Shema? Well, if it's just the first paragraph, maybe you can, right? And the rest of it, you can just like mutter to yourself as you're like feeding the baby, right? We've created now a different way of thinking about the practice that molds it to fit human needs and yet not in a way that undermines its ultimate integrity. All right, that's, what, that's, that's part of what was able to be done. So here we have, and here's another Brita. A Brita is a quote from Tana Itik Rabbis. When it says vehayu, instead of taking it the way that rabbi means it to mean it has to mean in Hebrew, it says shaloyikra that you shouldn't read it out of order. Ah, so now what does it mean to do the Shema and Kavana? It just means to say the darn thing. You just need to do it in order. So now it becomes a very like that's a much that's a much lower order in terms of what's required of you. Just don't like don't switch around the words. Just like make sure you say it. Say it right. That's it. That's all you gotta do. It's, it's like you're. It's like remembering a script. It's like remembering your lines. If you're an actor, you just have to say the lines. You're not. You don't have to be a method actor. You just have to say it, right? Alavavecha, though, is put these words on your heart, which is again another phrase from the Shema. Rav Zutra says, "Ad kan mitzvat kavana." Aha! Once we hit the phrase "Alavavecha," after that, you don't need kavana anymore. 
Mikan ve'elach, mitzvat kriya. And from then on, all you need to do is just read it. Back to the Mishnah. Right? Because they're drawing these terms from the Mishnah. But saying there's two things you need to do with the Shema. One's contained within the other. You always need to be reading it, obviously, because that's the mitzvah, Kriyat Shema. But some of it, you need to be doing it with intention. But now there's two ways of doing it. You read it with intention, and then there's just reading it. You only need to read it with intention until al levavecha. In other words, the end of the first paragraph. And then after that, you can just read it. You don't need to think about it anymore. You can just do it. Just do it. Nike. Rabbi Yoshia says, though, Ad kan mitzvat kriya, mikan ve'elach, mitzvat kavanah. He flips it. He says, no, 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 no. You just need to recite it until the first paragraph. And then after that, you need to think about the meaning. Now, he does not end up winning because that ends up like, the whole point of this was that you're supposed to make it easier, not harder. Everyone knows the first paragraph. Come on. You don't make it harder for people. But interestingly, what ends up getting picked up here is this is the point, is that, again, Mishnah versus Midrash. The question is, what is it in the text that is, that is like the, the bump in the text that's causing the rabbis to think, ah, this is the bump. This is the difference. My Shinah, what's different here, right? That's going to prompt them to say, ah, that's significant enough for me to pay attention to. And it's a trigger, right? It's like a sign that something's supposed to change there. It's a road sign in the text. That's something that you're supposed to take a left here. Or you're supposed to you know, turn on your no more Kavana blinker whatever it is, right? There's something different in the text that's prompting this reaction. So here we get to this. Umayshna, what's different that you'd say until here would be the mitzvah of kavana with, reading it with kavana. As it says, alavavecha v'dibartavan. It says, you should place these words on your heart, da 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 and you should speak of them. But it says also in the second paragraph of the Shema, on your hearts, and you should speak of them. So it sure seems like nothing's different. Right? Why would you pay attention to the way that this phrase appears in the first paragraph if in the second paragraph it appears in basically the same way and yet you're supposed to read it in a different kind of way? Right? The appearance of that phrase in the first paragraph is telling you that's where you that's the stopping sign. That's the stop sign for Kavana. Enough Kavana, you're done. But then why don't we just why why is it that phrase and not the one in the second paragraph? Why don't we have to say the second paragraph with Kavana too? And the answer is because we're drawing on Rebbe Yitzchak. And Rabbi Yitzchak says that that actually is refer related to Vesanta Mestavarai Ela Alavavecha. You should place these words on your heart. Srichash Sima Keneged Halev. Acha. That it doesn't actually have to do with intention and meaning anymore. When that phrase shows up, you bring it right back to the contextual meaning of the text. And when it says place these words on your heart, what does it mean? Place them near your heart. What do you mean near my heart? They're words. They aren't physical objects. Yes, they are. They're called tefillin. Because part of the content of the Shema is talking about putting your tefillin on. <sighs> okay. So we've now zoomed all the way to a new way of thinking about prayer, that prayer is not just something you do with your mouth and is immaterial, but is also something literally physical that you can do with your body. Okay, fine. And then the rabbis bring it back to Torah. Because on your heart actually really means, says the rabbis, the latter appearance refers to just words of Torah. The, the Torah is telling you, and this may be to Susie's point, teach your children Torah so that they can be well-versed in them. 
And that brings Shema back to another, to the original context we saw it in, that you're in the middle of reading Torah and then suddenly the mitzvah for the Shema appears. Are you able to smoothly transition from learning Torah into saying the Shema? The answer is yes, because Torah is actually the context for Shema. Shema isn't davening, Shema is Torah. Shema is something that you're supposed to be in a sense learning every day, you learn the Shema which means that maybe you should know it. Does that mean you should know the interior of it, the content, the meaning of it? Or does it mean that you're supposed to know it in a way that you know your, you know your lines in a script? All of these questions end up being asked. They end up staying in the text. And not just that, but every single opinion stays in the text. Now, have we come to a conclusion? Kind of, because we do have this conclusion that what's the, what's the requirement for Kavanah? It's just the first line. But none of that, none of what we were getting into ends up actually feeding into that. That is, a, that is just like quoted and then used. Vizehu, right? That's not part of the discussion. What Sugya ends up doing, or what we end up really doing in this, is opening possibilities. Opening ways in which this can mean something. Ways in which we can come to a conclusion. Such that when later rabbis ask this question for themselves about what are the necessary requirements for me to be saying, for, for me to be doing a mitzvah. What we have is all of these data points now that are interacting with each other, a constellation of ideas around this question that they're able to then draw lines in between to form their picture. Because what we have is a proliferation of ideas and directions, ways that they relate to each other, but it's not again about the conclusion necessarily, it's about opening up potentials and possibilities. That's what the Gemara as such is trying to do. And it's trying to get us to open our minds up with it. So thank you all for opening your minds up with it, getting with it. Um, like, like everything, what we're doing here is not dumbing down Torah ever. What we are doing is trying to show the ways in which there's richness in Torah and provide it to everybody in a way that they start to walk into it themselves. Gemara is hard on purpose. And what we're seeing is the ways in which the, 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 the nuanced nature of it, its complexity is not actually, a, it's not a bug, right? It's actually, it's the point that it's trying to help us think in a more complex fashion. It's trying to help us see that the simplest teaching in the Mishnah can explode into a, a woven texture of thinking, of discussion and of debate. And that's what we're gonna be getting into for the next three weeks, God willing, for the rest of the month of, of January, I'll be delving into swimming in the Sea of Talmud. Um, please feel free to reach out uh, via my email address, which you can find on the Beth Lita website or via Facebook or what have you. Any questions, any further ideas about this, um, I'll be, I, can post, uh, I can post a link to the source sheet. Um, also, if you wanna do some chazara, if you wanna do some review or get into it more. Um, last but not least, we'll be um, meeting again on Thursday um, for our weekly Parsha class. Um, so hope to see as many of you can join then at 7 p.m. And we have a Havdalah on Zoom after Shabbos, um, 15 minutes after Havdalah, so probably around 6 p.m. this week, 5.55 or 6. 
Um, check uh, Facebook or the website for that. Um, really a pleasure learning with many of you for the first time or for the, or for the manyth time. And um, thanks for starting in on this journey. I'm really excited to keep on progressing into the sea of Talmud with you all. God willing. Uh, any just closing thoughts or closing ideas? Great. All right, I'm going to stop. Thanks, recording. Josh. Really looking forward to this. Thank you. I'm, I mean, I'm. Uh, uh, how can I go to sleep now? Now I need to stay tomorrow all night. <laughs>